It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. What was Martin Luther trying to accomplish when he nailed his 95 theses to the Wittenberg church door? Would you believe he didn't intend to start a new religious movement at all? This October marks the 500th anniversary of an iconic act that inspired as many people as it angered. Down the centuries, Luther's been lauded by some, lambasted by others. Was he an amazing hero or arch-heretic, or perhaps something different altogether? Craig Harleen is a scholar of the Reformation and a professor of history at Brigham Young University. His latest book peels back the layers of history, taking us directly into the friar's musty study. The book is called A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation from Oxford University Press. This episode is part of a special series of interviews with scholars who will be speaking at our upcoming conference, The Living Reformation, 500 Years of Martin Luther. You can mark your calendars for September 15th when Harleen and seven other scholars will be here in Provo, Utah, talking about 500 years of Reformation history. For more details, you can visit mi.byu.edu slash Luther 500. That's Luther 500. And before we start, I also want to give a special shout out to my friend and number one fan of the Maxwell Institute podcast, Rod Olson. Love you, buddy. You know why. And to the rest of you, you can send questions or comments about this and other episodes to mipodcast at byu.edu. And as always, I invite you to let us know what you think of the show by rating it in iTunes. And now it's Craig Harleen on the book, A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation. The book's an incredible drama, one of the best things I've read in a long time. I hope you enjoy the interview. Craig Harleen joins us today here at the Maxwell Institute. Craig's a professor of history at Brigham Young University, specializing in Reformation-era Christianity. Today we're talking about his new book that comes out this October. It's called A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation. Craig, thank you for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me here. You open up the book with a passage from the Bible, from Ecclesiastes, of making many books there is no end. And you say that this is a verse that seems to apply especially well to Martin Luther. There are a lot of Luther books. Why? Well, he, he's a justly famous figure because of how he upset Western Christianity. And the trouble that he caused, the attention that he got, was really unusual. Since that time, people say that more has been written about Martin Luther than anybody except Jesus himself. Do you think that's true? It could be. I don't know how you would quantify that. I guess it might be possible to quantify it nowadays with the computers and searches and so on, but I, I don't know that I'm going to try. But it certainly seems true. There is so much written about him, not only in the 16th century, but in the in the centuries since. So he, he's obviously believed to have had this huge impact on Western religion and the Western world. As you're clearing your throat at the beginning of the book, talking about why you're doing a book on Luther as well, you say that he's been written about in more ways than most. What, what did you mean by that? That any time a historian sets out to write about someone, they're going to do it slightly differently than somebody else, just because of their personality and how they read the sources and so on. So the more people who are writing about him, the more stories that are going to be told about him as well, the more variety of stories that, that is going to be told. Would it be possible to break some of the library up into genre? Like if you had a library of Martin Luther stuff, what are some of the sections that people might visit? The biggest is theology, for sure. That's a that is a hole that you can go down a long way. Um, there's so much written about his theology. And then biographies are especially important as well. And mine's a partial biography. It's just about a four or five years of his life. How did you decide to focus in on that particular moment? This goes to the question of why you wrote on Luther at all. 
It was actually the editor's idea, the publisher who asked me to do this, because they felt that these were the years that mattered the most, these first few years of his fame, and maybe not as well understood as they might be. A lot of people have heard the name Luther, but they don't really know what he did. He's more like this statue or icon that we all pay lip service to. So they wanted these details kind of told in an approachable or uh, accessible way. And you also warn readers along those lines that they're not going to encounter that monument Luther here, the bronze statue. They're, they're going to encounter a flesh and blood person. Do you think there are readers who really need that kind of a warning that might approach this book and learn things about Martin Luther that make them squirm? Um, because anybody who's regarded in a particular culture as a hero, if you say you're going to write about them as a human, that can be threatening, I think, to some people. And so that I just wanted to signal that at the beginning, I'm really focusing on Luther the human and making him accessible rather than you know all the big consequences and impact of what he did. That's really important, too. And many authors have written about that, and that will be the focus of that, that conference at BYU. But I think it's important to understand, first of all, what happened and, and to try to get that as right as we can. How familiar were you with the figure of Luther before you undertook this particular book project? I'm not a Luther specialist, but I'm a historian of the Reformation. So I've taught his basic story many times in my Reformation class. I've read plenty of Luther biographies and so on. But the publisher, when he asked me to write this book. I said, well, I'm not a Luther specialist. And he said, I know. <laughs> they wanted somebody on purpose who was not a Luther specialist to write for other non-specialists, thus to write for general readers. And so I said, oh, yes, I'm qualified to do that. Um, and, of course, then I studied him as closely as I could during the time deadline that I had. And uh, I learned an awful lot that I hadn't known before myself. And so, there, I mean, there's always more to learn about Luther. There's always more to read. There's probably no way that everybody can read everything written about him. Was there anything that you learned in the course of writing it that you realized in maybe some of your courses that you'd been teaching that you had had something wrong about Martin Luther that you're like, oh, oops? Oh, yes, various details. The, the overall picture, I mean, we never get into enough detail to make it serious, but there were various details that... I think I probably did have wrong, yes. And, uh, do you want to divulge I'm any of I'm trying to remember what they were. There were so many. <laughs> you don't file away where you goofed up. You don't like have there, that on there, instant there, access. There, there were plenty because there were things I had taken for granted as well and yeah. assumed were true. And then when you start reading more closely, it's probably like that for any subject. Perhaps as we go along, some of that will, will come up yeah. as well. Um, you know, you can learn a lot from the way that people address somebody. And one of the things you do at the outset of the book is you tell readers how you're going to be talking about Martin Luther, and you're saying, this, I'm going to call him Brother Martin or Dr. Martin, and you say that some people refer to him as Father Martin, so you do that sometimes, and then you mention that other people sometimes would just call him Luther. Uh, what's in these names? Well, it's not just the name. It's part of the overall approach that I'm trying to set things as much as possible in their own world and to try to understand what was it like in those years for Luther and to be in his shoes and so in order to do that, you try to create an atmosphere, and you do that with various means. You describe what things look like. You're not obligated to do that as a historian, but I try to just, what, what were the buildings like, the street, what was the material setting, and so on. And part of the other thing is how did they address each other? And the people who called him Luther, which is what you would expect most biographers to do, I suppose, in this kind of impersonal way, were those who really didn't like him or who didn't really know him. And since we're trying to get into his shoes and wanted to get really up close, 
I decided to try calling him what the people around him called him, which was usually Dr. Martinez, or I call him just Dr. Martin, or Brother Martin in his friary where he lived. Uh, the brothers might have called each other that. They, they were brothers. And then Father Martin is what others called him because he was a priest. That was a common form of address to a priest. That's what his prince, Frederick the Wise, called him, always Father Martinez. Yeah, it kind of discloses these multiple roles that Martin Luther embodied then, partly because of his education, partly because of he was a, a, a monk. Is a monk? Or friar, yeah. Uh, well, we can talk about that if you want. <laughs> yeah, what's the difference? Well, in German, there's one word, munch, for monk and friar. And in English, we have this distinction. And the main distinction is that monks withdraw from the world and friars don't. Friars go out into the middle of the world preaching, uh, educating and, and so on, but they still lead a life that looks like that of a monk. They wear a habit or a distinctive uh, cl- piece of clothing, um, but th- yeah, they're just they're more out into the world than monks are. And some of the monks might have looked askance at that and right, saying like, "Hey, we're supposed to do this contemplative life sort of away from things." And the friars were saying, "No, we need to go out where the people are." Here, exactly. Monks believe they were saving the world by praying for it, and friars believe, "No, you save the world by going out." into it, and there were many learned monks, for instance, but they didn't like some of the traditions at universities, like disputation. They thought that was unchristian to be arguing like that, and so friars didn't have as much of a problem because they were in that world. They were in the university world often. So a friar would have been more rough and tumble that way and more familiar with that sort of... That's right, especially once if if they were associated with the university. Not all friars were. And Martin Luther was. Yes. One other question on that. Uh, Anyone who's familiar with Friar Tuck recognizes that haircut that... When I saw the cartoon as a child, the Disney cartoon, I, I didn't realize that I just thought he was a balding man with a really weird <laughs> balding pattern. But no, they would shave the tops of their heads. It's called a tonsure. Is that? Yeah, it's the tonsure. Yeah, it's, it, it's a form of humility or a sign of humility. Because it's it to looks make you even more or... unattractive than you already are. <laughs> it really was to make you look goofy. It was... If you consider that look unattractive. Yeah, it's kind of baldish. <laughs> of course, it, it does look goofy because the hair for them would come all the way. So you'd still have hair in the front. You right? might. Yeah, if, unless you were balding. Exactly, yeah. but then you would you would shave it, and you would even you, you you would actually shave it on top, and then underneath as well. So you'd have this ring around your oh, head, you got kind the of undercut. Yeah, yeah, and that was again this this sign of humility. And monks and friars often did it. That's Craig Harleen. He's a professor of history at Brigham Young University, and we're talking about his new book, A World Ablaze: The Rise of Martin Luther. And one other question before we dig into Martin Luther's biography: the title. Uh, how did that come about? Usually. There's some kind of story how the author argues with the publisher over titles. <laughs> That's so, what I'm looking for. So we had something like that, but uh, the publisher finally decided on this one. Uh, it's actually a phrase from one of Luther's letters, and he says that his enemies are saying that the world is now ablaze with his 95 theses. So that's where it comes from. But if you had your choice. My original title came from the papal bull when he was ex- excommunicated, basically. Spoiler which alert. Call, yeah, which called him a wild boar. I thought wild boar was a good title. And then you'd have the subtitle explaining kind of what it meant, that it was about Luther, but the, the publisher felt it was too vague. Maybe the publisher's right. They have a lot more experience selling books than I do. But I, th- I thought wild boar was kind of curiosity arousing. It would have been, and do you think maybe they were worried about that could seem insulting to the figure of Martin Luther? Uh, it's possible, except I, as you read it, you'll see that it's more a badge of honor. I mean, yeah, he, he would have hated sure. the title yeah. in one sense, but in another, he would have been very proud of it, right? That he was brave enough to trample through this, this papal vineyard, essentially. Martin Luther 
was kind of an unlikely candidate to become a friar. How did he arrive at that? He was unlikely maybe to um, go to university even because he was the son of a miner whose fortunes were up and down all the time. But he was an aspiring enough miner that he had ambitions for his children, but especially his mother. Uh, Luther's mother seems to have understood the importance of schooling. And so she was the one, I think, who got him into uh, schools when he was young and he showed promise. He was therefore sent to the Latin school, which was usually done when you're around 11, 12, 13. And that was a sign that somebody thought maybe you could go on to university. The language at universities was Latin. So you had to learn it if you wanted to go to university. So he did that for six or seven years as well. Um, and went on to university and no intention of becoming a friar. His father wanted him to become a lawyer. Uh, and he, he finished his degree in arts and intended maybe to start studying law. He, he actually studied law for about three weeks. And it was during that time that he had a crisis and decided to become a friar. He'd probably been thinking about it sometime before then during the preceding years. But it was only at that moment that he actually took the step. And it was provoked by this crisis of conscience, really, with can he be saved? And he decided that everybody in his world knew that the best way to be saved was to die with a monk's or friar's cowl on, on and, and to appear at the judgment seat that way. And, and so he thought, if I'm doubtful about my salvation, and the best thing I can do is to enter a friary or a monastery. There's a story that's told that's taken on sort of mythic proportions in terms of what his conversion was about. There's a story of him in a storm. Right. That's the, the famous story that he's in a thunderstorm. He's, he's gone home to visit his parents. It's possible that his father had arranged a marriage for him. And this really stunned uh, Luther. He didn't necessarily want to do that at the moment. And on the way back to the university, uh, this is in the middle of his first semester of law school, uh, he is caught in this thunderstorm and he makes a vow that if he's saved from the thunderstorm, then he will become a monk. And these thunderstorms in this part of Germany are really exceptional. I've been in one myself. Mm-hmm. And it was it was frightening, and I was in an automobile. If I if I'd been walking along, I think I might have been terrified. So, you know, it's not surprising to me that it might have provoked that kind of reaction or that kind of vow, which was a very common thing to do in his age. If you were in trouble, you would make a vow to a saint and promise that if you were saved, you would do such and such. It struck me that in a book that was written so much like a novel, that you treated that moment at a distance. Was that because of the historiography of right, exactly? Of the it's not entirely clear that it happened. Luther wrote about it much later, and and so some of those Luther specialists and biographers doubt that it happened. And it's rather something that he not necessarily made up, but just later on really believed that that had happened or, or something like this. Or so he needed sort of a theatrical moment, something to yeah. point back to. You can a- assign meaning to something exactly. later on in life. Yeah. Exactly. So it was kind of, so uh, biographers have downplayed it, and that's why I didn't want to make it central. I mean, I, I try to offer various possibilities why he mm-hmm. might have entered the monastery, and that was one of them. Um, he, he really did care about the state of his soul. So he's going into the monastery. Readers might come to this book with the impression that Martin Luther was facing off against this all-powerful monolithic Catholic Church. I think that's probably what makes him such a romantic figure today. It's a David and Goliath situation. But as you described throughout the book, the church had some internal variety going on. There were differences between scholastics, or schoolmen as they were called, versus churchmen. So Martin Luther had options in front of him. 
when he decided to, to become a friar. Talk about that and give us a little bit about the Catholic context. That he yeah, def- almost every religious order in the Catholic Church, and there were dozens of them, um, maybe even by that time hundreds, almost every single one was a, in a sense a different form of Catholicism. Every single one was almost a protest against the existing cult- church culture, and so we're going to do Catholicism in a slightly different way. So the idea of Martin Luther uh, you know, immediately rebelling against the church or something, just it, it's really a distortion. He was very much Catholic. He was very much within the church, and there were a lot of possibilities of how you could express your Catholicism. What did he think about the scholastics versus the churchmen, and, and what were those differences? Right. That happened after he started studying theology. So after he finished his bachelor's degree and master's degree in the arts, his brief attempt at law school, he entered the monastery, and after a couple of years as or, or the friary, and after a couple of years as a friar, he was allowed to begin studying theology. And so as in, in his study of theology, he wasn't studying the Bible as much as he was studying commentaries on the Bible. And most of those commentaries were by fellows who were called uh, scholastic theologians. These were theologians who intended to set up a rational system of theology based on the forms of reason that had been modeled by the great classical thinkers, uh, Aristotle and Plato, especially Aristotle. And Luther didn't like how they had done this. They hadn't only used the methods of reason, but they had t- taken on some of the assumptions of, the, of Aristotle as well. And so he found scholastic theology to be pagan, to be a dead end, to be anti-biblical, and so on. He wanted more emphasis on the Bible. He wanted more study in the original languages of the Bible. He wasn't the only one promoting this at the time, but he was certainly influenced by that wave. That, that was his whole point in being against the scholastics. He himself was a scholastic theologian. He used a lot of their methods, just the idea of using reason to explain Christianity, the idea of using disputation to get the truth. Those were very much scholastic methods. He didn't reject all scholastic theology. He rejected the parts that he felt were infected uh, with Aristotelian thought or with, with pagan thought. And he ends up creating this disputation against scholastic theology, which is uh, a number of theses. What was the gist of that? Right. One of the things to understand about the whole theses business is the forms of instruction that were available at universities, and they're pretty familiar to people at universities today. Um, They'd been around since universities were invented in the West in the 12th century. They were lecture and recitation, which is kind of like study group with your TA, and then disputation, which we usually call debates. But disputations were more formalized, and they were very much a part of the curriculum. And for the disputation, somebody prepared a set of theses, thus assertions, and somebody or some team argued in favor of the assertions, and somebody else argued against them. So theses were the foundation of this institution of the disputation. You had to have them in order to have a disputation. And so he, he, he prepared theses on various subjects before this time. But That was the, what you did. That was what professors did. Certainly when you became a professor, you were preparing theses all the time for your students to practice on. They had weekly Friday disputations, or they would have these big public disputations at graduations, at ceremonies, big events, and professors themselves would participate uh, as well. So in this particular disputation against scholastic theology, this is really a crucial one because it was on the subject that he cared about most, which is how you were saved. This is why he was maddest at some of the scholastic theologians, 
because he felt that the way they had borrowed classical thought, or Aristotelian thought especially, was wrong and had given Christians a wrong idea of how we were saved. So this isn't just about scholastic theology, it's especially about how we are saved. And this was a very personal thing to Luther. He wasn't studying this because he thought the theology was bad, necessarily, or uh, you know, just as a purely intellectual matter. It was because it wasn't giving him any satisfaction with his own crises of conscience. Yeah, he was feeling like this unworthy person, and he had been going through these exercises as a friar that were supposed to give him the virtues that would lead to the Christian life, and he was feeling like... It wasn't working. Yeah. Right. The scholastic, what, what, there were all kinds of scholastic approaches to the theology and just to that most important topic of salvation, but what all scholastics agreed upon was this. This is what it came down to, that everybody is justified or saved by grace. The question is, how does that work? And the scholastic answer was, you're justified by grace through doing every single thing you possibly can. So doing what lies within you was the language that they used. And that would include church sacraments as well, right? Oh, yeah. Um, whatever forms there were available in the church, you know, you do all those. You get penance, you, you, uh, you confess, um, you get, sorry, you get forgiveness after, after you confess and, and do penance. And Luther uh, had tried those things, and the idea that, you know, doing everything you possibly could just wasn't working for him. So it was in the midst of this, you know, crisis and thinking about the, the scholastic approach to salvation that he came up with his alternative, which was not something that was completely original with him. He was influenced by, by a lot of others uh, as well. The first solution he tried was a monastic tradition, which was justification by grace through humility. So you recognize that you can't do everything. You recognize that you're not going to be able to do enough to please God. And so you say, God, I need your help. The problem with that solution he soon saw was then it became a question of, well, how much humility do you need, right? It's kind of the same question as, how much do I have to do in order to get grace? It seems like he was a really scrupulous person, and so it would weigh on him in a personal way, like, well, how much do I have to do? And then that would bother him, and then he'd think, well, is this the right, right. way to even go about it? And monks were very aware of this. Um, this was an occupational hazard when what you did most of the day was look inside yourself to find your sins. You're going to find some. And so they called it, uh, they, they were prepared to deal with monks and friars who suffer from this. They called it overscrupulousness or the bath of hell. There was just people who worried too much about it, just almost collapsed from it psychologically. So there were various methods that monks and friars were used to using in order to try to distract people from this. And Luther's confessor, who was his superior, tried to get him more into his studies. Study more, get your doctorate in theology. He's a very good student, and so uh, he pushed him in that direction, trying to, to get him to, to obsess less um, over his salvation. But anyway, one of the big disputations that he wanted to prepare was this disputation against scholastic theology because he wanted to dispute this idea that in order to be saved, all you had to do was what lay within you. He said this just is not a satisfactory answer because how do you know when you've done enough? You can always think of more you could have done. So he prepared 99 theses for uh, this, this disputation against scholastic theology at the occasion of the graduation of one of his students. And that was, again, a big time to have these disputations, three or four hours of you know, fine-sliced arguing in front of a bunch of uh, dozing people. That was what better way to celebrate your graduation, <laughs> right? And this, yeah, this went on for a That's long time. That's how I did it. <laughs> but this was very common. The, the thing was, nobody really cared about 
this set of theses, these 99 theses. That yeah, you say it was there. a real dud. Yeah. Uh, there, I'm sure there were some fireworks that happened at the disputation itself. Nobody really made a record of it. But there was really no response. His former professors at a university he attended, who were very much scholastic theologians and didn't like what he had to say, they were upset and they wouldn't talk to him. But there really wasn't much of a response. It's certainly not the response he'd hoped for, especially people jumping on his side. I mean, he thought, and many professors would be angry, but he thought many would, would also jump on the, on the bandwagon with him, and they didn't. And so it was really disappointing to him. And so the dis- disputation against scholastic theology, which he thought was going to set the world on its, on its end, just really amounted to very little. And that, that takes us to the next set of theses, the 95 theses, the famous 95 theses. Were these written then? Did Martin Luther just really want to stir things up, or what led him to this next attempt? No, well, I mean, sure, he wanted to bring attention to that. You, 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 maybe some personalities just want to stir things up, but his job as a professor of theology was to call attention to subjects that hadn't been settled by the church. And justification, which was the subject of the disputation against scholastic theology, had not been completely settled by the church. That's exactly why he could write about it and also why he didn't get in trouble, because there were a number of answers. I should have mentioned in discussing that, that his particular answer to the question of you know, how you're saved, it was not do all that lies within you. It was not, oh, just be humble and accept your sin. It was justification by grace through faith alone. In other words, through assenting passively to God's saving you. You couldn't save yourself. You couldn't do anything to save yourself. And so you simply assented to God being able to do that. You recognized your own weakness, and that was when you received God's grace. That was his answer, basically. And and again, it was the answer not very many people cared about. Well, at the same time that this happened, and maybe out of frustration that people hadn't responded well, to his disputation against scholastic theology. This is in September of 1517. This is right about the time that he decides to write his 95 theses against indulgences. Now, uh, indulgences did not really, weren't supposed to anyway, have anything to do with salvation, which was the thing he really cared about. And indulgence was part of the sacrament of penance. First of all, you confessed your sins. Second of all, you were absolved of your sins. And third of all, then you carried out some kind of punishment for your sins. To make it right. Right. And what the indulgence did was to forgive you of the punishment, forgive you from doing the punishment you'd been assigned to do, your penance. This happened because sometimes you got sick. Maybe your, maybe your penance was to go do a pilgrimage. Maybe it was to do a certain number of prayers or whatever. And the indulgence would forgive you of having to do this because maybe you'd been, become sick. Maybe you couldn't you know, carry this out anymore. It was just impossible for you to carry it out. And, and indulgence meant kindness. So it was a kindness from the church uh, to allow you to do this. It'd been around since about 1100. But what Luther was upset about was that they had been uh, taken to me- have new meanings. And so he'd preached against indulgences since about 1514. He'd given maybe four sermons from 1514 to 1517 against indulgences, but his superior and, and confessor... Um, the ur- person he would confess to. Yeah, Johann von Staupitz yeah. was, his, was his name, uh, urged him to do something more serious. 
And if you were a university professor, this meant writing up some theses for a disputation. That, that was the, almost your Pavlovian reaction, right? Oh, there's something wrong here, so let's write up some theses. And the idea was to, again, this is an unsettled subject, so you're going to have this disputation, and hopefully we'll get closer to the truth through having this disputation. Various evidences will come out on one side or the other, and hopefully we'll come to a better conclusion. So he, he had no problem doing that with justification by faith. Again, almost nobody noticed, and everybody recognized this was an unsettled subject. So sure, go ahead and say what you think. And indulgences were another unsettled subject. The problem was they weren't just any unsettled subject because of who was in charge of indulgences, which was the Pope himself. And was it, were they unsettled because it wasn't sure that they even worked at all, or that the theology behind them was inadequately accounted for? Yeah, exactly. The theology just wasn't very full. It was a practice that was done over and over, but when you asked or tried to inquire how did they work, it wasn't entirely clear. Like the, the idea that there was the storehouse of good deeds that the saints had built up, and the church had possession of that, kind of that they could sell that to people. Like that. they. That was the basic theology, and it was understood that way, but there were many points of it that weren't entirely settled. And the thing is, if you decided to have a disputation and write some theses about a subject, you were bound to bring out some criticism or negative comments about whatever it was that was at hand. And in this case, because the Pope's in charge of indulgences, you were bound to criticize the Pope, or at least some people would take it that way. Yeah, he tried to tiptoe around that, right? Oh, yeah. And so he framed these 95 theses in a way that tried to not bring any attention to the Pope at all. But, of course, it was impossible, but he, he mentioned the Pope as little as possible. The most famous and the most problematic of the theses uh, regarding the Pope were, I think, numbers 82 through 90. And in these, they, they basically said, look, what are we to say to people who are saying, why doesn't the Pope just build St. Peter's himself? Why, does the po- why doesn't the Pope just let people out of heaven for free instead of charging uh, yeah. uh, and so on? And he would take that money and build like they were going to build this right. place. Yeah, so that's yeah. What, what else we have to explain about indulgences. They, they originally were just to free you from this punishment that you'd been assigned, right? It wasn't about your salvation. The absolution uh, from your sins did that, but this was just to remind you that you'd done something wrong, and, and this is how you try to make up for it. Um, but now, uh, over time, ordinary believers came to see indulgences more and more as conferring forgiveness of the sin itself, as a form of absolution itself, instead of just forgiveness from this punishment you were supposed to carry out. And that was what really bothered Luther. And then they became attached by about 1485. It was also said, oh, you could even let dead people out of purgatory, your relatives out of purgatory. Well, this extended the market for indulgences Purgatory is where people would go to suffer the penalty for sins that they hadn't fully accounted for Exactly, their on their way to heaven. Or punishments that you hadn't carried out, that you'd been yeah. assigned to carry out. Okay. Right, and and so uh, that was you that. could buy your family out of there, like hey, yeah. yeah, that was the idea. I mean, when you got an indulgence, you were still supposed to confess, you mm-hmm. were still supposed to carry out these acts. But if your relative was dead, I mean, what what could they do? Right, you you couldn't do much for them. All you could do was purchase the indulgence. I should say the 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 financial angle of indulgences was they become so popular to finance things that it was very controversial to oppose them for that reason as well. They were like a public bond almost, They were right? a bond. And and imagine, you know, nowadays if there's a bond, people will vote on whether they want to accept it, and they might say this bond is a bad idea. With indulgences, you know, you, you were questioning the whole institution if, if you started 
criticizing indulgences. So Luther wasn't the only one who was criticized. A number of people were criticizing indulgences. That was why his, his superior urged him to be the one to do something because of his position. He's a university professor, and it was assumed by all learned people of the time that if there was a problem in the church, university theology professors were the ones who were supposed to solve them. So he's the one who, who's supposed to do this. So he, he writes up these indulgences, and, and he one of the things questioned, does the Pope really have jurisdiction over purgatory, for instance, right? Uh, can the Pope really say, here's an indulgence that's going to let your relative out of purgatory? Does, does he really have jurisdiction over that? It's not entirely clear. It seems only God should have jurisdiction over purgatory. Anyway, there were, there were an, a, a few things like that, and Luther tried to be restrained. He tried to make it very clear that these theses were not against the Pope, himself they were they were questioning the whole uh, institution of indulgences but again because those were tied to the pope it was hard not to to see it that way uh, he planned the disputation and the theses in latin no disputation was ever held maybe because he recognized that this was such a sensitive issue that he probably shouldn't hold a disputation on that um, but he wrote them all in latin he didn't intend that ordinary people should see them. The first copies were pirated. Somebody got a few copies. He sent out a few copies himself, handwritten, and a few of his friends had them printed. Um, what about so, the image of him nailing it to the church door? Yeah, he, he, you know, he probably took the theses down to the door of the castle church. Uh, the castle church belonged to his prince, Frederick the Wise, who had established the University of Wittenberg, and he had a castle in Wittenberg, among other places, and the church of the castle was the university church as well. So the the door of the castle church was the university bulletin board. It would be like taking something over to the Wilkinson Center and nailing up, you know, or, or gluing up or stapling up that you have, you know, the, this announcement or an announcement for a conference or a speaker or whatever. It was very routine. There were other notices on the door as well. So the act of simply putting the theses on the door was absolutely inconsequential. It really wasn't important at all. It wasn't some act of defiance. It was part of what you did if you were a professor was to put up theses. It came as a big surprise to me, the idea that it wasn't Martin Luther just listing all these grievances he had with the Catholic Church and then marching down to the church and nailing it to the door in this passionate display of defiance or something. This this wasn't just a list of grievances. It was a theology. It was an argument of 95 points on one particular topic, yeah. and he posted it on the bulletin board. Right, and he did other sets of theses with all sorts of numbers as well. He had one with 50 theses, one with three one with 13, I mean, I can think of them off, you know, off the top of my head. He had a, a whole bunch of disputations with, with theses that were involved, and this was his uh, particular subject. So, Well, you said these were hardly cannonballs, too, like what he actually wrote in there. What happened? Well, it depended on who was reading them. That was the thing. I mean, he himself thought he was being very restrained. And again, he never intended them to be out among ordinary people. But what happened was that once they got printed— then they got a lot more attention than any other set of university disputation theses ever did. Is that because <laughs> it was with the money? Like people care about money? Or why do you think that is? You mean with the indulgences? Yeah. Oh, it's partly that. I think it was the novelty of somebody implicitly criticizing the Pope in public as well. I mean, other people were doing that. Erasmus was doing this at the time. And there were other uh, Catholic thinkers who were doing the same thing. But I think it was understood that indulgences were a big deal. And again, they were used to finance so many things. They paid for the castle church. where They paid for Wittenberg University where, where he, he worked. Yeah. They paid for the city church where he was the city preacher in Wittenberg. They paid for bridges. They paid for almost everything. They fed Martin Luther. 
yeah, they they help pay him. They they help pay his his you know minuscule salary at the as a professor at the University of Wittenberg. So it was a big deal to criticize them. I think, and and this causes interest, right? I mean, even if you're against the idea or against his his theses, you 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 still are interested in them because they're controversial. They so they get out in Latin, and then somebody a month later, this is like in January 1518, had the brilliant idea of publishing them in German as well, and then these sold out really fast. And printers were, you know, they're market-driven people, and they saw that these were selling, they're cheap to produce, you could put them all on one page, and therefore they were the ones who, who saw, saw a market here. But the theses were not the thing that really were the bestseller. The bestseller was a sermon that he gave in February or March of 1518 in German that also treated indulgences. And the so he remark- saw things getting out of control. He, so- uh, yeah, he, the, he, he, he was really bothered that the theses would have been circulated in public, so especially said, in German. I'll do a sermon. I'm, I'm, I need to address this. Exactly. I, I'm, I need to explain what this is on. He's- and by the way, let's talk again about the stakes. Let's say he was overtly attacking the Pope, saying the Pope was wrong, and declaring the Catholic Church was wrong. What were the stakes for him then, if, if that oh, was he, all true? He probably would have immediately uh, been in trouble and even excommunicated. But he, Could his life have been in jeopardy? Uh, sure, if his prince if his prince decided that he was a heretic, a heretic could be executed. Okay, so the stakes were such that he could literally lose his life here. So he's going yeah, to give he, this sermon. Yeah, but that this is why he, this is one, re- I mean, he's bold on one sense, but he's also being very careful about how he distributed the theses. He didn't hold the disputation, for instance. Yeah. Uh, either people weren't brave enough to come or he realized maybe he shouldn't hold it. Nailing or gluing the theses to the door was no big deal at all. So that wasn't that wasn't anything. What mattered was what how how people uh, might might respond to this. So um, so the, he's going to give this sermon, right? And he decides that uh, you know I need to explain this to ordinary people. Ordinary people don't understand the culture of disputation at a university. They don't understand that when you write one of these theses, you tend to exaggerate, and the reason you exaggerate is because you want to bring out an issue really fully. And so that was part of the custom of disputing, was to exaggerate. And, and so you could write 95 theses and say, I don't believe any of them. I'm just trying to you know, provoke discussion. But his opponents wouldn't let him get away with that. And, and they used to say, no, oh, he believes all of them, uh, and, and therefore he's really dangerous. Well, this is why he decided, I've got to write something for ordinary people. And interestingly, he, he did a sermon, and it had basically 15 to 20 points. And not one of those points mentioned the Pope because he did not want anybody, especially ordinary people, getting the idea that he was against the Pope. So he's real careful in these theses, and these are the things you really need to know about indulgences, he was essentially saying. You don't need to worry about the Pope. This is, here's the problem with indulgences, why they don't save you. Don't let anybody say that they forgive your sins. And he was especially writing against the latest indulgence, which wasn't just something that the Pope was indirectly in charge of, but directly in charge of. And this was the St. Peter's indulgence, which was to help raise money for the building of rebuilding of St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. And wasn't it also like a super cool indulgence too? Like the kind of indulgence it was was even more super powerful? Oh, something? yes. Yeah. It, it was claiming things that went way beyond whatever theology of indulgences there were, and that's what really infuriated Luther. It was saying, you know, you could get your relatives out of purgatory. It was saying that, you know, if you did this, you still had to confess and so on. But it was a plenary indulgence, which would allow you to skip purgatory altogether. A plenary indulgence or a full indulgence meant it forgave all of your sins up to that moment. And so you would never have to spend a minute in purgatory for them. 
And Luther's saying, this is ridiculous. There's no theology supporting this. There's no one who can do this. And so he's arguing from within the Catholic Church, right? oh, yeah. from the Catholic perspective, believing that he is presenting the orthodoxy. Exactly. Yeah. That's exactly the point. He thinks he's orthodox and that indulgences are not orthodox. So he gives this sermon. He talks to people publicly. And you also write that some of this opposition actually ended up making Martin Luther even more confident in his position. Why is that? Those who opposed him ignored his desire to say this is not about the Pope. That, that was what they immediately turned the argument to. They said this is all about the Pope because if you question indulgences, you question his authority. The Pope has the keys or the authority to issue indulgences. There's a treasury of merits. Christ and the saints did more good deeds than they needed for their salvation. And the way you can be forgiven of your sins is by borrowing or by being granted the good deeds that are in this treasury of merits, and the Pope controls that treasury of merits. That, that's how indulgences work. So his opponents immediately recognized the implications and connected him to somebody who was opposing the Pope, therefore he's a heretic. You know, if you oppose the Pope, you're automatically a heretic, was their reasoning. Uh, and so this is, this is what really started getting him into trouble. What that did then was make him go back and say, am I really sure about this? And he studied, you know, the biblical text closer than ever, believed there was no justification for indulgences, also became more and more convinced about his idea of justification by grace through faith alone. Um, so he was reaffirmed in all this, certainly. So while this is going on, you've hinted at this dynamic already. Martin Luther found himself caught up between political authority and church authority. So you've mentioned Frederick, for example, and it seems from the book that he was perhaps the most important figure in Martin Luther's life. That's for sure. Luther was trying to clear up all this theologically, right? He's trying to explain himself to his public. He tries to explain himself to the Pope. He sends a copy of the 95 Theses to the Pope himself with his explanations or proofs, which were always part of a disputation. You, you didn't just make the assertion, but you offered proofs for each assertion or each thesis. He sent this copy to the Pope trying to explain everything, but it really didn't help. And at that point, the, the Pope and the men around him decided to bring an ecclesiastical suit against Luther. Remember, there were civil courts and there were church courts, and the Pope had his own court, so they wanted to bring a, a case against Luther for heresy, for questioning indulgences, and basically questioning the Pope. So at that point, they could have demanded of his prince, you know, you need to bring Luther to trial, or you need to arrest him, you need to send him to Rome, any number of things. And in fact, they demanded all those things of his prince, named Frederick the Wise of Saxony. And Luther's prince was, was in fact, a very wise fellow. He, he didn't, hadn't gotten his nickname yet, but he got it later on. And he said, you know, he hasn't yet been convicted of heresy. There are many who agree with him, many theologians who agree with him. Therefore, I'm not going to arrest him or send him to Rome. As soon as he's convicted of heresy, sure, I'll arrest him or I'll send him to Rome. So the, the protection of his prince uh, during 1518 and 1519 proved to be really crucial. And those political events and his prince really saved him. I mean, it, there might have been other Martin Luthers in other places, and we've never heard of them, right? But everything, all the stars aligned for, for Luther to be able to get away with what he was about to do. So the church didn't unilaterally rule and it, the Pope then had to sort of negotiate with these local rulers, Frederick being one of them, and, and he also depended on the Pope for things. There was some quid pro quo going on. What was in it for Frederick n not to just indulge the Pope? And Right. Mostly his independence. I mean, uh, princes were proud, and they wanted to assert their sovereignty, 
and therefore they weren't just going to extradite people because somebody else wanted them to. They had to have good reasons. That was the the declaration of their sovereignty was Hmm. being able to say, no, I'm not sending that person anywhere. That's my subject. He also took it seriously. He believed he'd also been appointed by God and he was going to try to rule fairly and by sending away someone who hadn't been properly convicted, he felt like he wouldn't be doing his duty as a prince. So, uh, you know, there are all kinds of things that are going on we don't have to get into. Uh, there are political things, rivalries that he had with other nobles or, or other princes around him. So, yeah. We, and again, the Pope was dealing with with his own issues. What was the Pope like? This is Pope Leo X? Yes. Leo X was a famously Renaissance Pope, meaning that he was interested in hunting and other such things more than he was. He wasn't personally uh, a bad fellow. In fact, when he was elected Pope, a lot of people praised it because he was known to be personally moral and so on. But As opposed to some of the past. Yeah, ex- yeah. exactly. But he wasn't necessarily a great theologian. He was very good at music. He was known to compose music. He had a fine voice and so on, but he especially loved hunting. But he really wasn't going to tolerate any questioning of his authority, and the people around him weren't going to allow that to happen either. So we've got this dynamic of church and state, so to speak, sort of wrestling, but it's also a state that's religiously invested as well. Oh yeah, the Frederick himself, I mean, every state was Catholic, and, and the state was and church always worked together. Frederick himself was very pious. He And one way you showed your piety was by collecting relics. Frederick had about 17,000 of them by then, uh, worth all kinds of indulgences, by the way. Yeah, I so mean, Martin Luther maybe wasn't a fan of that No, he, he in fact, he offended Frederick a few times by saying, don't rely so much on indulgences and giving sermons in the castle church against indulgences. And he wasn't saying you shouldn't have indulgences, and he wasn't questioning the authority of the Pope. He was saying, don't make indulgences what they're not. You know, here's what they are, and here's here's what they should remain. But they're they're just being exaggerated. But Frederick wasn't exactly thrilled with that, and he could have had reason to be be mad at Martin Luther, upsetting. I mean, he had thousands of pilgrims coming to his church. Frederick did, and that was one reason Luther put up the theses on October 31st. If he put them up, was because November 1st is All Saints Day. And that was the day you went and got indulgences, and you visited, you know, you thought of your the, the dead before you, your dead relatives, as well as the dead saints. And that was a huge day at Frederick's Castle Church when all the relics, all seventeen thousand, were put out on display for you to see and you and and to uh, purchase indulgences from. So. Frederick could have chosen to oppose Luther, but it's a mark, I think, of his integrity and his intellectual honesty, even, that he would say, all right, let's hear what this professor has to say. Uh, he's a professor at my university. Uh, we have to take him seriously. He hasn't been convicted of, of, of heresy yet. So uh, Frederick decided to protect him for various reasons. He didn't do it immediately. I mean, he did it in baby steps. Uh, there was a point in December of 1518 where Luther was ready to flee the principality in order to spare Frederick having to arrest him or not arrest him, right? Because then Frederick could get in hot water. Frederick would be in trouble. So, you know, they, he was sovereign, and that's how he could resist the Pope. But if enough princes around Frederick decided they didn't like some of the things he was doing, or if the emperor, right, of, of Germany, it's the Holy Roman Empire, if the, if the emperor didn't like what Frederick was doing, he could justifiably invade and take over Frederick's principality. Now, in most cases, that was going to happen, but there was that possibility, and, and other princes might do that as well. And one thing they might attack you for was for harboring heretics. So he knew this was very sensitive, and he was he had to walk a fine line, and he was later given his title of Frederick the Wise because of how he handled this whole thing. 
So here's Martin Luther in the middle of this, also worried about anything from excommunication all the way to execution. And he has this Frederick protecting him. He's got the Pope coming after him. The way that you tell the story is so good. I mean, I would call it even, it sometimes was heart pounding. Like I would feel, there were times when I could not put the book down, uh, which I didn't expect when I picked it up. It's an amazing book. It's A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation by Craig Harleen. And we're talking with him today about the book. So here's Martin Luther in the middle of everything. At what point did it become clear to Martin Luther that his relationship to the Catholic Church might be damaged beyond repair? It wasn't yet. It wasn't in 1518. Um, he, the Pope's he, trying to say, come and talk to me. He's, he's, he's beginning no. to see in late 1518 that maybe his relationship with the Pope might be damaged beyond repair. But because he could ride that out, maybe. He, well, maybe. Yeah, because he still believes in the Church. His, he, he, by late 1518, he was beginning to question the authority of the Pope over the whole Church. He didn't deny that the Pope was the Bishop of Rome. That was his first title. Let him be bishop in Rome. Does he really have authority over the entire church? Okay, yes, we can accept that as a practical matter. Maybe somebody needs to be in charge. But there's no scriptural justification for a universal leader of the, the, the church here on earth. So now the things that his critics were accusing him of all along yeah. starts to rise up. Was that always there, or did that just was that just come to the surface no, because it, it was the it heart No, it came of the to issue. the surface because of events and because of uh, people questioning him and he having to answer them. He was summoned to Rome in late 1518. Frederick arranged for him not to have to go, but to be heard by the Pope's representative in Augsburg in southern Germany because the imperial diet, as it was called, or assembly, was meeting there. All the princes and churchmen of the empire would meet there. And so the Pope had a delegate there, and and Frederick said, why don't you just have Luther talk to your delegate there? And this delegate was a cardinal, and this cardinal really didn't seem interested in hearing Luther's responses, and therefore that's when Luther began to really doubt, gee, does, uh, is the Pope really all that interested in me? If he's willing to send this guy who won't even listen to me but just tell me to submit and obey, I mean, what kind of a church is that, right? I mean, that's essentially what, what Luther was saying. Yeah, he thought he would trust the process, this idea that we could go through these disputations, we could have these formal exchanges and try to get to the core of the issue, but this person shows up and is just like, no, you just need to say you're wrong or else. Exactly, and the person who interviewed him, the cardinal, was named Cajetan or Cajetan, was a theologian himself. He understood the culture of disputation. He was a university professor and so on. But he also so knew his job. He right? did his, knew his job. And he, but the fact that he refused to engage in a real disputation, as Luther saw it, was just a sign of disrespect. They did end up arguing more than Cajetan intended, but uh, it wasn't what Luther expected because at the end, he, again, he was told just to submit. So this got him mistrusting. And then further events in 1519, another disputation in the town of Leipzig, uh, where he was challenged to a disputation on, on papal authority, basically, again made him realize just how far away he was from the Pope. Um, not against the Church, not far away from the Church, but from the Pope, and just saying, you know, this whole institution of the papacy is wrong. The idea of Matthew 16, which is the usual scriptural justification. Jesus you know, gives the keys to Peter the, and says, on this rock I'll build my church. Right, and then Luther says the rock is faith. It's, it's salvation by, you know, faith. It's not— like it's, Peter's the rock. It's not Peter. It's yeah. not It's not the Pope. Uh, again, we can have a Pope, but that Pope it was not appointed by God. It's just a—it's a human creation for a, this worldly necessity. And people were—his opponents, anyway, were scandalized by this. Many other 
Germans loved what he was saying because there was a lot of anti-papal sentiment in Germany. So the sentiment was, we want to have our own Catholic Church in Germany. We want, uh, among some people, it was very psychologically, you can imagine, it's very difficult to say, we're not going to have the Pope anymore. It wasn't, it didn't go that fast. It was more, we want to have our own Catholic Church in Germany. The, you know, the Pope can be uh, Pope in Italy or whatever. Uh, and and that's, that's more how it went. And there were a lot of people ready to jump on that bandwagon. So the dreaded bull arrives. What was the bull? Right. This is the bull of excommunication. This finally came in the summer of 1520. That's a long time. When the Pope had first started this legal process against Luther in the summer of 1518, it had been dragged out because of political considerations that we won't get into and the protection of his Prince Frederick. But finally, in 1520, the Pope doesn't need Frederick anymore. Frederick had been a key player in this other thing that Pope was interested in, and he didn't need him anymore, and so he's, he's going to excommunicate Luther. And it finally arrived in October of, of 1520 in Wittenberg, and Luther had 60 days to recant, or he would be excommunicated. And it's, it shocked him. I mean, he had expected to be excommunicated all year, but he was shocked uh, when it arrived. And partly because of the way that it did, maybe, too, right? He never felt like he got his audience to make his argument. That's right. I mean, he'd, he'd written by now uh, dozens of tracts. He'd engaged in several disputations, but he felt like nobody had really taken him seriously at the papal court or among his foes. And, and so it was really a, a disappointment to him. And it was from that time on that he began to uh, attack the Pope. That, that was really when it began. So he yeah. attacks the Pope. Then he goes to the Pope recants, and everybody lives happily ever after. <laughs> well, not quite. He goes into hiding at this point. Well, not yet. I mean, first there's the famous, uh, he's finally summoned to, to another imperial diet, this one in the city of Worms, and he's, he meets the emperor Charles V there, the new emperor, and he's given a chance to recant, which that took a lot of political wrangling on Frederick's part just to give him the opportunity to be heard at Worms. And he went to Worms with the understanding that here was his chance for a disputation. Here, here he was going yeah. to be able to do his, you know, say what he thought. But he gets there, and it's just like the last hearing. He said, no, you have to submit, and that's it. You know, and, and they, they heard him a little bit. He got to say more than he thought he would. And this is when he makes his famous, you know, uh, here I stand. Yeah, except he didn't say here I stand. He, Sorry, everybody. but he he refused to give in. He he said I can't change what my conscience has told me, and and you have to listen to your conscience and so on. And and that's that's his famous stand at Worms. And it's on the way home from Worms that his life is seen to be in such danger by Frederick. Remember, he's out of Saxony by now. He has to save conduct from the emperor, but. People were afraid that the emperor was going to violate the safe conduct. So Frederick himself had Luther kidnapped on the way home to Wittenberg, and he put him into one of his castles in Saxony uh, at a place called the Wartburg and that was rarely visited, and that's where Luther hid for the next 10 months. And he didn't like it there. He hated it there because he, first he didn't like being alone, even though the order that he belonged to was officially called the Hermits of St. Augustine. He was by no means, by temperament, a hermit. He loved being around people. He just disliked the idea of being alone. He felt more tempted by the devil and so on uh, than he even usually was. Let's talk about that, uh, because he eventually does come out of hiding in anticipation of being excommunicated. He's going to face the powers that be. Yeah. And this thing has been plaguing him that you described, and it's a German word, and I'm not sure how to pronounce it, Anfechtungen? Yeah, an Anfechtungen is, or, or Anfechtungen is just, it's something like a temptation, but more than a temptation, more than a struggle. And so he used that word all the time, and it doesn't have a precisely 
uh, translated English equivalent, and so historians tend to just use the original word. But yeah, he has these temptations. The temptation for him is not to believe that Christ will save him. Even though he had this great insight and the thing that saved him and brought him to the gates of paradise, he felt like, and saved him from hell. That he was saved by grace. Justification by grace through faith alone, right? That was the big insight. Even though he had that, it, he had regular bouts of doubt and, and through his whole life. And, and so he talked about those. Those were his temptations. It wasn't sexual temptation. It wasn't you know, all the classic temptations we might think of. It was doubt. And he, 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 reg- he had these regular periods that, that oh, now you're really not good enough to be saved. Now Jesus isn't going to save you. That's not how it works. You've got to prove yourself to God again. You've got to do all these good works, and you can't do them. You know? So this is kind of the temptations that he would go through. And he had them even more at the Wartburg where he was alone than he did when he was busy at the university. Because you know, in solitude, he's left to contemplate his sins even more than usual. Yeah, there's a quote from him that you have in the book, I had rather burn on live coals than rot here. So he was not comfortable there. And he had this doubt that was plaguing him. So he... He decides to go back to Wittenberg. And he writes a letter to Frederick. Frederick doesn't want him to come back. I mean, Frederick's been good enough to hide him, protect him by hiding him. Frederick doesn't want him out in public because it will put both of them in a difficult situation. Frederick has to take action, basically. He has to either excommunicate and imprison Luther or he has to not do that. And if Which would be a breach that, of what the church wanted. Well, and yeah. that will, yeah, that will be bring political troubles for Frederick as as well. So Frederick wants him to stay his hiding indefinitely and maybe come back in the summer of 1522, but doesn't want him to come back yet. Luther writes a letter saying, "Look, I'm coming back anyway. It's time." And the reason was because things were falling apart in Wittenberg. Some people were reforming much faster than Luther wanted to himself, and it was causing all kinds of hard feelings disagreements, uh, and so on, and as religious change often does. And Luther felt like he had to go back personally to supervise it. And he says to Frederick, look, if the emperor sends his men to arrest me, let them in. If the pope sends people, let them in. You don't have to protect me anymore, but I have to come back. Yeah, as you said, things are sort of getting out of control in Martin Luther's eyes. You had other reform-minded individuals who were perhaps inspired by Luther or kind of sensed the climate was open for more disagreement with the church. But as you said, Martin Luther differed from other reformers on certain things. There's a way that historians categorize it between magisterial and radical reformers. Right. Well, magisterial reform happens through basically a town council or through a prince, right? It's part of the order of things, and the radical reformers kind of withdraw from society. Uh, And Luther was more inclined for order. He... When you read his tracts and his rhetoric, especially some of his later works where he was so vehement and venomous, you think that he's really a wild-eyed kind of guy, and that's not really true. Part of the reason he used exaggerated language because that was part of the culture of disputation, part of the uh, culture of arguing among professors. But when it came to practical policies, he was very conservative. And so he didn't want to change the church order right away. Like, people who were changing things in Wittenberg thought they were following Luther. Yeah, there was a guy saying, hey, let's change the mass. Let's do it this other way. Well, Luther had written the tract saying this is how it needs to be changed. And so Luther did want to change, but he was saying, but you don't just change it overnight. He says, you have too many people who can't bear that, and we have to think about the whole flock. This is a constant problem in any kind of religious reform is, you know, how do you placate everybody, those who want to change and those who don't want to change? So he says, uh, when he goes back to Wittenberg, 
you know, we're going back to everything the way it was. We're doing the mass in Latin. Other people wanted to do it in German right away, and, and, and there had been some masses in German, and he wanted the mass eventually in German, and f- by 1526, he'd written his German mass and so on. But the first thing he did when he got back to Wittenberg was to put on the brakes and slow everybody down and say, we have to consider everybody and move any kind of change very slowly. Yeah, it was striking how the debates that Martin Luther and others had weren't merely about making the right changes, but also making those changes in the right way. Yeah. He said, he almost never used the word reformation or reform. He said, only God can reform the church. What he believed he could reform was the university curriculum, for instance, the theology curriculum to start teaching more about grace, right? But reforming the church, that was what God did. So all people could do was open their hearts to God, assent to letting God come into their hearts. And when people changed, then the church could change. That was his constant emphasis. He didn't believe in just imposing change by the state or even by the local pastor or whatever. It's like you you preach the word of God, hearts were opened, and then that's when change could happen. That's when you could have the German mass, for instance. Was he always true to that conviction, though? I'm thinking about, for example, I mean, he oversaw the burning of books of people that he that he opposed, which is, seems yeah. ironic because he was his books were burned. He apparently acquiesced in capital punishment. I'm thinking of the Anabaptists, for example, people who believed in being rebaptized. Yeah. They gave them the, quote, third baptism, which was to drown them. Right. And Martin Luther was cool with that stuff, wasn't he? Well, yeah. So it, that's why the answer is it depended. <laughs> when you say... Um, if he, he, what, he, what he was consistently against was violence, violence or, or forceful action, let's put it that way. Like that he, that's why he was against the reforms in Wittenberg that were too radical for him because people were being forced into it. So he was, he was consistently against that in theory. But in practice, you're right. There were other ways that he showed that he was willing. When the, when the peasant rebellion started in 1524 and 25, many of them used Luther's own words to support their cause, and he was furious about that because he never wanted any kind of violence, you know. Or uh, uprising like that. Right, yeah. in the name of God. He didn't want any kind of German rebellion against Rome either. He didn't want Lutherans. Uh, yeah, exactly. He didn't, so he didn't want any of those things. Yeah. So when the peasants came and started fighting, and, they, and he, he, he was so mad that he wrote a tract against the murdering hordes of peasants and told the nobility to go ahead and kill them. Mm-hmm. So there he's advocating violence, even though he was usually against violence. So right, he's not always entirely uh, consistent. Later on in life, when he gets really angry and cranky, he writes his most infamous work against the Jews. And he doesn't say to kill them, but you know, he, he doesn't, he, he seems to advocate violence against them being okay in some cases as well. So yeah, he's not entirely consistent on that, but he was consistent in his early years in theory of, of believing that violence was not the way to change religion. So what happened to Luther then? He goes back to Wittenberg, he's trying to quell these reforms that seem like they're swinging out of control, and what's his fate? What happens? Well, he succeeds in quelling the unrest in Wittenberg, and there is a very steady and calm and conservative sort of reformation that happens very gradually. Um, he still wears his, his friar's habit, but that goes away after a couple of years. Um, he has disagreements with some other reformers. Um, he, he 
again, advocates violence against the peasants of 1524 and 25. What did the church do to him? Is he com- the, oh, the church has excommunicated him by now, remember. And yeah. so it all depends on, on Frederick protecting him. And Frederick continues to protect him and seems to be able to get away with it. What pr- could have pr- happened to him if Frederick didn't protect him? Oh, oh, he executed, excommunicated, sure, he could have. Or if Frederick could also have been invaded by, by other princes around him who you know, were his rivals enough to, to want to do something like that. But with those threats hanging overhead, Martin Luther didn't lay low. No, he didn't. He, 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 but Frederick didn't want him back as a professor right away either. He had to wait a year or two before he started lecturing at the university again. Uh, Frederick himself died in 1525, so there's another question, you know, what will happen to Luther? Lu- Frederick's successor was his, his brother, and his brother was a much more ardent supporter of Luther and not nearly as neutral neutral appearing as as Frederick. Frederick always tried to stay neutral to pretend he was just the fair prince, but his successor was really a big fan of Luther and supported him uh, overtly and this would eventually cause war. Frederick had probably took the took the wiser course or at least for the time uh, he seems to have. So Luther starts arguing with other reformers, you know, safe there in Wittenberg. He never leaves Saxony again because it would be too dangerous. Uh, but he argues with other reformers in the south of Germany, he argues with Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich. They argue and argue. Well, it divides the Protestants as yeah. a result. And, and so Luther, it also, his, his calling for the killing of peasants and then his arguing with other Protestants dampens some of the popularity for him. He's still very popular in the center of Germany, the east, the north, uh, and Scandinavia, right? And Scandinavia by the, in the 1520s becomes officially uh, Lutheran even. Um, and by 1529, they, they all get the name Protestants. You know, Lutheran and Protestant were derogatory terms cast upon them by their enemies. Like most religious nicknames, there are derogatory terms. Um, and, and he didn't like being called Lutheran himself. But anyway, he, he starts promoting his version of reform all through the 1530s. He gets really discouraged when he realizes people aren't understanding his justification by grace, you know, as fast as he wanted them to. And even at the end of his life, he's, he's saying nasty sermons to the people of Wittenberg because they should reform their lives. The, the Protestant problem is this. Luther believed that if you were really filled with grace, you would do all kinds of good works. Right. The works wouldn't save you. Yeah, the stereotype but, is if someone thinks they're saved, they could go out and murder a bunch of people. Not at all. Fine, Lu- but that would be a good indication that you weren't saved. No, exactly. No, yeah. no. Luther said if you, his Catholic critics, you know, the, within the church immediately would say, you know, grace just promotes laziness and people feel like they can do whatever they want. Luther said, you don't understand grace. If you really feel grace, you do even more good works out of the gratitude that's in your heart because you know you're sinful. And so it, it's, a better, it's a better system than one that's dependent on works in order to get grace. And, and so his, his opponents um, you know, were, were lashing on, or latching onto that. But, but Luther was saying to, his, to, to the people in Wittenberg, look, the fact that you're behaving poorly shows that you've never received grace. So this is the classic Protestant anxiety, mm-hmm. right, is that maybe if they're not living well enough, they haven't received grace as much as they thought or they don't believe as much as they thought in, in Christ's offer to save them. So Luther wanted so, to get rid of this anxiety. You can have anxiety both out. ways, yeah. you know, <laughs> whether you believe in works first or, or grace first. So by the end of his life, you know, he was still complaining about the people not believing his words as well as they ought to. The, the visitation reports that were coming back were just full of people being ignorant about their religion and the basic foundations of it, and it really discouraged him. He got angry and angrier. He wrote his famous tract against the Jews, uh, mostly because he he'd actually been hopeful earlier in his life that the Jews would convert. Now that he you know revealed the true gospel, he thought for sure they would. And 
they hadn't. And in fact, he even had heard rumors they were trying to convert others, and this got him furious. And so this is when he wrote his really nasty track that uh, later anti-Semitic people would use as well. And, and this is like in 1543, shortly before he dies. He also writes his nastiest tract against the Pope around this same time. So he's getting old and cranky and sick. And, uh, and then he dies in, in 1545, yeah. 1546. <laughs> and since his death, obviously, he's become a monumental figure, as we talked about at the outset. But we've also talked about that he wasn't a perfect reformer. He, there were things that he did that I think people who today revere him would be uncomfortable with book burning and, and, you know, at least winking at or acquiescing or sometimes encouraging violence, even against his better principles, the anti-Semitism that you mm. talked about. How do Lutherans and Protestants who admire Luther today deal with what they might see as the darker sides of him? Well, like people in any faith have to deal with the darker sides in their own faith. Um, Catholics with the Renaissance popes, right? Mormons with the Mount Meadows Massacre and so on. Um, some people simply ignore it. And that certainly happens, uh, or they downplay it and say it really wasn't that important. But most of the time, you, you just have to deal with it, and the best way is usually through historical context. You try to understand uh, Luther as a person of his time. He, it's true he wasn't the only anti-Semitic one. Most people were anti-Semitic, for instance. I think the, the blame would be that, well, he was a little more articulate about it than most people and had a little more influence than most, and so that's where, that's where the blame might come. But th- usually you have to deal with these things through trying to set things in historical context. The people who weren't the anti-Semites, who might have otherwise agreed with Luther in a lot of things, they didn't become the figureheads. But Luther did. What do you mean, later within the Lutheran Church over the centuries? Yeah, yeah. The fact that there were probably reformers who believers today would, if they'd learned more about them, would actually feel more kinship with than Luther, perhaps. That's very possible. I mean, if you if you study any of their lives, there are going to be things you like or don't like. What do you want to remember? What do you care about? What what offends you now? And you, it, it's hard to deal with this. And and really the best way to deal with this is to study some history and to understand some kind of historical perspective. But it's not easy. That's Craig Harleen. He's a professor of history here at Brigham Young University and an award-winning author of books like Sunday, A History of the First Day from Babylonia to the Super Bowl. He also wrote a memoir about his missionary work as a young Latter-day Saint. It's called Way Below the Angels. But today we're talking about his book, A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation. Craig, this book is a different kind of history book. It reads more like a novel, like I said, like a real thriller. And I didn't expect that when I picked it up. And you said that's what your publisher requested. So talk about how you go about this style. Well, there's a long tradition in history of writing narrative or writing a story, but that fell into disfavor, I suppose, probably by the 50s and 60s and 70s. And and the way I learned history in graduate school was not to write narrative Mm -hmm. history. It's seen as a bit simplistic and there's something to it. It's that when you reduce something to a story, you've automatically changed what actually happened. Uh, you've just, you've condensed time, compressed time, you've picked and chosen, you, you, you're not recreating the past, you're not recreating reality, you're creating something new, it's a work of art. So it was believed that if you did this more structural or analytical history, as it was called, that you would come closer to the truth. The problem with that kind of history is it's, it's, it is very helpful, but it's not always fun to read. And if you're interested in reaching larger audiences, you usually have to write narrative. It's not true of all people, but a lot of people, I mean, I've seen studies about this, a lot of people respond better to narrative 
than they do to other forms of thinking just by telling stories. The great religious truths in the world are usually couched in some kind of story. It's not just a series of doctrine. The doctrine is instead created from stories. So that's the case, I think, with narrative as well. So I, narrative suited me better. I liked it better. I've learned a lot from structural history. I've written it myself. But I like writing the narrative. And if there's any story that's dramatic in the early modern period, it's Luther's. And so that's the way I decided I wanted to write about it. And, and the publisher you know, thought I could do that. As you said, when you came up through school, though, this wasn't something that they were training people on. How did you learn the craft of, of, of this kind of narrative? Well, I, I, I kind of was in the closet, I suppose, in that way. Because um, what first attracted me to history was narrative. You know, when I was an undergraduate student. And then when I was in graduate school and found that it was out of disfavor, I quickly silenced my, my interest in it. <laughs> and I remember toward the end of graduate school, um, talking with another student that I'd heard make a comment that made me suspect he might be interested in narrative as well. And so one night on a dark sidewalk in New Jersey, uh, we started talking about uh, Truman Capote's nonfiction novel idea. And it's like, wow, you're interested in that too. And we kind of looked around to see if anybody was listening to us. You know, it was so, it was so underground to, to talk about narrative. But so I've always been interested in it and, and decided, I, I learned a lot from doing structural history. So I'm really glad I did that. In fact, it's been crucial in writing narrative history, but it, the, the trick is how do you work that into your narrative? How do you work structures? And explaining how a society works, you have to work that into your narrative in an artful way. So I suppose I learned about it just by doing and reading others and, and finding examples, reading a lot of novels, as well as reading historians I, I really like. While most readers know the general outcome of the book, which is Martin Luther doesn't stick it out with the Catholic Church, the Reformation happens, you still manage to bring so much suspense to the book. What kind of tips would you give people who want to give that kind of a feeling where there's suspense to a story that's actually pretty well known? The most important thing is not to write the story as if you know the end, as if you know the outcome. You have to put yourself in that moment, and so that's what I try to do from the beginning. So I'm glad it worked with you at least. I hope it works with others. That you have to put yourself in that moment at which you don't know the outcome, and you're full of the tension, you're full of the uncertainty, uh, full of the stress you know, that Luther was going through. You, so you can't write by you know, always tipping your hat that, you know, you, that you're, you're inevitably going towards something. Even the great histories of Luther almost can't resist doing that, just because he's so famous and, his, and the consequences of what he did were so big. The great biographies, which, which I learned immensely from and I'm indebted to and so on, even as they uncover or reveal Luther's world in great detail and with great sensitivity, they still want to look forward and, and they just can't resist it. So I decided I'm just, I'm not going to do that. I'm not sure I'd do it necessarily any better than anybody else because there are other really good books about him. But I really tried hard to, to stay in that moment and not to look ahead, not to say, oh yeah, well we know what's gonna happen. You know? and, and if you read any of the really cheesy histories, that's how they're always written. There's always some you know, excessive foreshadowing, right? That somehow you know how this story's gonna end. So I'd like to hear your response to two familiar phrases that I'm going to slam together and see what you have to say about this. So back to back, these phrases seem to contradict each other, but I've heard both of these phrases used by historians to talk about what it's like to write history. So here are the phrases. First one is, the past is a foreign country, which was actually coined by a novelist, interestingly enough. And the other one is, there's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. 
Right. You seem to hear historians say those according to whatever suits their purposes at the moment, right? <laughs> it's one, in one hand, they'll be, but rarely do they discuss them at the same time. And so I think you're, you're smart to bring those together. Nothing new under the sun. What I think that suggests is that when you read a human story, and, and that's why I think it's important to make it human, is that you can relate to it. And you relate to it not because exactly the same things have happened to you, but because the human element is familiar enough. You recognize you know, his emotions, you recognize fear, you recognize all those things he has to go through. And so that makes you realize, wow, he's a lot like I am. That's really important in history because what we tend to do with the great, the people whose names we still remember, if they're really, you know, if they're heroic, we tend to make them bigger than they are and bigger than we are. And if they're really evil, we tend to make them worse than we are. But if we study them more as humans, we see we have a lot in common with both the good and the evil. We have, we have all that inside of us. And I think that's, uh, that's really important to understand. We limit our possibilities when we make people of the past bigger than they were or smaller than they were. We, uh, and we also limit our own possibilities. I mean, we limit our possibilities when we do that, is what, is what I mean to say, when we reduce them to, to something that they weren't. So that's why I think it's important to see them something as we are, to see them as human beings. And that's the nothing new under the sun. When we say the past is a foreign country, that's absolutely true as well. And so we have to do both of those things at the same time. And that is, we can't go into that world assuming we understand what's going on. Assuming that the way we see the world is how they saw the world. So for instance, if we're looking at Luther's really abusive language in some cases, we can say, wow, what a guy. What a, what a bad guy, you know, using that kind of language. Sometimes it was directed at good targets. He Didn't he say like he was going to fart at the devil or oh, something yeah. like that? All <laughs> like kinds he... of stuff like that. But, <laughs> but then when you read other writers at the time, you realize they're all writing this way. Yeah. And Luther wasn't necessarily any worse in that regard than they were or any better, however you want to look at it. And so there's that historical context again that's so important. Because otherwise what we end up doing, if we judge the past by our immediate values, we distort the past as well. And, we, and therefore we don't really learn from it. I mean, the whole point is to get some insight for living today. But if we don't get the past right on its own terms first, then we're not going to have any insight for our life. We're going to have distorted insight is what we're going to have. And we're basing ourselves on things that really aren't very helpful. That's just a small example, you know, of Luther. Of Luther's language, uh, it just wasn't that unusual. Or even the 95 Theses. If we think that's some defiant act to nail that on the church door, we completely distort what he what he was doing, and we don't understand his world. So we have the past is a foreign country in that sense. We see a word we think we understand, even in English, that meaning might have changed over 400 years. We, and there are all kinds of examples. That's why you don't understand Shakespeare the first time you hear it. it there, are too, there are too many different ways of saying things now. Too many meanings of words have changed, and so on. So that, th both of those statements are exactly true, and you have to be aware of both of them as you're writing. Why is it so hard to do that, though? <laughs> and it's not just when you're writing, but I think people that are reading your book, it's, it's difficult not to, to struggle with that. Yeah. Uh, I think you just have to keep both of them in mind, that there are things that are familiar and there are things that are exotic, and I think both of those are really crucial in history. I mean, this is why science fiction, you, if you to take an example like that, it's very exotic. But if it didn't have that familiar element, I don't think it would be nearly as popular as it is. There has to be something that you can connect to. And the same thing is true of history, which isn't supposed to be science fiction at all, right? It's most, supposed to be much closer to our experience in all ways. But it's still exotic. It's still, it's still a whole different way of looking at things. And when you do that, what it does is make you realize, I guess my world doesn't have to be set up the way it is. And, and and not only that, we can change it the way we want, I suppose. Uh, so, which I, I could be 
both reassuring or horrifying. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Exactly. But that's the whole reason of studying history on its terms, of also not reading history backwards, you know, knowing the outcome, because it didn't have to go that way. Mm -hmm. It could have gone a, a different way. So it really opens up your own possibilities when you study history rightly, I think. That's Craig Harleen. He's a professor of history at Brigham Young University, and he's the author of books including Sunday, A History of the First Day from Babylonia to the Super Bowl. He's an author of Way Below the Angels. The subtitle on this one, The Pretty Clearly Troubled But Not Even Close to Tragic Confessions of a Real-Life Mormon Missionary. And he also wrote the brand new book, A World Ablaze, The Rise of Martin Luther and the Birth of the Reformation. Before we go, let's talk for a minute about the conference that's coming up here in September. It's called The Living Reformation, 500 Years of Martin Luther here at BYU. That's right. On September 15th, it's a one-day event going from, I think, 9 in the morning until 5.30 with eight different speakers. And then that evening, a musical extravaganza of Reformation music for one hour. It'll be in Provo. Um, but yeah, eight speakers from around the U.S., experts on Luther, expert, well, experts on the Reformation, experts on the legacy of the Reformation. I think four of the speakers are specialists in European history and four in American history. So we'll be talking very much about Luther's legacy. I'll be the one not talking about legacy, but talking about what Luther actually did. What sparked this conference? I think uh, the conversation with Spencer Fluman, the director of the uh, Maxwell Institute, uh, and wanting to just commemorate here at BYU uh, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation in 2017. I think that was it. And then we started talking to some other people. I asked some people if they were interested in coming, and they were. And so but you got uh, some big names. Yeah, we're, we're, I'm really happy with the people who were coming. It's going to be good. We'll have more information about that at mi.byu.edu for people that would like to attend either the conference sessions itself or some of the musical events surrounding it. There will be an even song the night before. There will be a concert of Reformation music uh, the evening of the conference. So it looks to be a really exciting thing. And, and it is a no. It is a conference designed for uh, lay people, general, general, not not for professors, not for scholars of Luther. It's designed very much for a general audience. And we'll have more information available on that. Craig, thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your new book. You're welcome. I was glad to be here. Mm-hmm.